you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to the book of Exodus. And if you are a first-time guest in here or watching online, today is a great day to be with us because we are starting a new study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. A book of 40 chapters written by Moses, who's one of the major players in the book. But it's important to understand that Exodus is part of a much bigger book. The first five books of the Bible are a cohesive unit, a cohesive narrative, and in Hebrew, they're called the Torah, which means law or instruction. So if you've ever heard of a Jewish friend talking about the Torah, he's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. You may have also heard the first five books of the Old Testament referred to as the Pentateuch, and what that is, is penta means five, and that's a Greek term, and that comes from a Greek translation of the Old Testament translated around 200 B.C., called the Septuagint. All right? So we'll just, let's, let's say that word together real quick. Septuagint. All right? Now, Pentateuch. Let's say that. Pentateuch. You guys are scholars. We've got a bunch of scholars in here today. Septuagint and Pentateuch. And it is from the Septuagint, that translation in Greek, 200 B.C., that we actually get the name of the book that we refer to today. Exodus. That is a Greek word. And it literally means departure. So like when you're at the airport and they've got arrivals and they've got departures, they think they have arrivals and they have exoduses. That's what it's referring to. It's referring to departure. And specifically, it's referring to the departure of the Israelites, as we just read in Genesis, a promise, that they would go out of that land, that they would be delivered from that land. That's the departure that is front and center in this book of Exodus. And it's a book that is truly epic. Even if you don't have much of a background in the church, there's scores of movies that have been based, some more close than others, on this because it is an epic story. And every scene is like just straight gold. This is the book of the baby in the basket. This is the book of the burning bush, of the river turned to blood, of the plagues, of the angel of death, of the crossing of the Red Sea, manna in the wilderness, water from a rock, thunder and lightning on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf, glory in the tabernacle, The book, and, and the book of Exodus is kind of like the event of the Old Testament that all the biblical writers look back to. But somebody's like, well, that's great, Joe. But why do that right now? With all that's going on in the world today, why this? Why not a, a, a series on, you know, getting through a pandemic? Why not a series on the dangers of, of idolatry in politics? Why not a series on racism or on nationalism or on anxiety or on fear? How about how to repair relationships that have been tarnished by politics? How about something on isolation and loneliness as I continue in quarantine? How about something on struggle, like my struggle with sin, even though I've been saved and I keep wanting to go back to bondage? My friends, the reason we're going to go through Exodus is because Exodus hits on every single one of these things. Every single one. 
fear and anxiety and loneliness and desperation and and long-suffering. 400 years in slavery. And hope and deliverance. And rebellion and racism. And the drawl of returning to our, our bondage. Returning to our idols. Questioning God. Blaming God. As well as submitting to God. And Exodus helps us get underneath all of these symptoms and deal with the true disease of our sin and helps give us a view of God that transcends all these things and gives us confidence in Him as our deliverer, our provider, our protector, and our friend. I mean, it is a poor, underdeveloped, or wrongly developed understanding of God that leads to so much of the issues in our lives. And we can't control the circumstances that come into our lives, certainly, but how and what we understand of God and how we respond to those circumstances are largely predicated on our understanding of God. And so a right understanding of who God is must be the primary pursuit of those who want more out of life than just the accomplishment of their idols. And so all of that, all of those specifics, is to come. But first, today, we just need to kind of ground ourselves in the story. Like, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Right? So, I mean, you probably heard that, that phrase, <clears throat> and the, most of you know, I love to backpack. Didn't get to do it this year because of COVID, but... Love to backpack. Look forward to getting back to the sections of the Appalachian Trail. I do one at a time. Most of the miles I've covered now with John and, and Chad. I've done some with college roommates. 30 miles with Haley a couple years ago. Hope to do the same with Claire this coming summer. This coming summer. But one of the things is like when you're hiking, sometimes, a lot of times it's, it's ridge running. You're following ridges. And so you're at elevation. And you know there's just forest all around you but you're so like socked in, locked in by the trees, you can't see the forest around you. And then you get to that clearing where, whoa, now I can see the scope of the forest I've been in. I can see like the the contours of the mountains that I've been in for so long. And this morning, that's what I want to try to help us accomplish. I want us to be at a vista and see the contours of this mountain of a book called Exodus. To see the major themes that are going to follow us all throughout our study. But going forward, we will be getting down into the trees. And so I want to begin with us up above and get the contours, get the major themes. And I think the best way for us to do that this morning is first just get a quick review of Genesis. Because again, Exodus is part of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's part of one big story. Genesis comes first, so we need to kind of understand a little bit of that. So 50 chapters of Genesis, I'm going to try to give you in two minutes. And then after that, I just want us to kind of introduce the major characters of the book. And I think through that, we'll begin to see these contours and begin to see some themes develop that we're going to trace for the next six months. And so Genesis, here we go. Most of you can probably tell me, Genesis begins with with what words? In the beginning, God. God. And He creates everything. 
And then sin enters the world, fractures, fractures that, and then right away, Genesis 3, we get the first picture of the gospel. It's called the proto-euangelion. It's the first picture of the gospel. And God promises, I'm going to send someone who's going to fix all this. Flash forward to chapter 12. Jesus, God shows up to Abraham. He's named Abram at that time. He's just a dude in the Middle East, present-day Iraq. And he says, hey, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. You are going to be my people. And through you, through your family, that I'm going to give you more family than stars in the, in the sky, through you, I'm going to bless every family on earth because eventually through his line will come the Messiah, Jesus. But that promise, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 12 through 17, passes from Abraham to Isaac. And then from Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and the promise will actually flow through the fourth son named Judah. But the guy who gets the most press time in the rest of the book of Genesis is a guy named Joseph. So if you have any background in the church, you learned about Joseph when you were growing up with a sweet old white-haired lady with a flannel graph. And she slapped Joseph up there in a coat of many colors, right? Because Joseph was Jacob's favorite. Jacob was a horrible dad. Terrible. He played favorites. We went through it a couple years ago. But Joseph is a favorite. And so his brothers are jealous. They decide, oh, we're going to get rid of him. They sell him off into slavery. They tell Jacob, hey, and that wild animal killed him and ate him. Sell him off into slavery. Off he goes into Egypt where he's a slave. God works providentially through the midst of crazy circumstances, raises him up to become second in command in all of Egypt. Genesis ends like that. But then over time, there in Egypt, look at chapter 1, verse 8 with me. Over time, there in Egypt, now there arose a new king. Actually, i got to back up. There's one thing. I, I, a major detail that we need to go back and clear up real quick. Joseph is second in command in Egypt, and a famine breaks out. Famine breaks out. Jacob says, we need food. Hey, my sons, go to Egypt. See if they have any food. They go to Egypt. They get arrested. They get brought before the authorities. And who's the authority? It's Joseph, the one that they sold. Joseph forgives them. He doesn't retaliate, and he invites them. Hey, come down here and live here in Egypt, and I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. And so Jacob and his 70 descendants move to Egypt with Joseph. And as we read in Genesis right there at the end, Joseph eventually dies. Now what? Chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know or remember Jesus. Why? Well, could have just been over time. Out of sight, out of mind. Could have been a new group of people rose to power, either an inside coup or an outside invading force. We don't know. But anyhow, verse 9, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And this goes on for 400 years. From Pharaoh to Pharaoh to Pharaoh, passing down the Hebrews as slaves. And it gets worse eventually when a certain Pharaoh comes to the throne and starts killing all the male babies of the Hebrews. And then he dies and another one arises. And we'll, we'll talk about the trees of all of that next week. But forest-wise, right here we, we've already introduced one of the major characters of the book. And that is Pharaoh. So character number one, you need to know, write in your notes, Pharaoh. And in Moses' life, we're going to see two in particular. It's interesting, chapter one kind of covers like 400 years. Chapter two covers about 80 years. And then the whole rest of the book covers about one year. And so we're going to deal in the, with, with, in the 80 years with two Pharaohs. One when Moses is young and one when he is old. But Pharaoh, you need to know that. You need to know Pharaoh. And Pharaoh literally means great house. It's reflective of where he lives. But it's so much more than that. Because Pharaoh isn't just like idolatrously seen as a, a, a political savior that will get them out of their political hell and into their political heaven. He's actually seen as like God. Deity. Worshipped as deity. Truly. And if he said something, it was done. Unquestionable, totalitarian, a God has spoken. But to really grasp the power of who he is, because anybody might, could believe that in their little village, is to understand the power of Egypt at this time. They were the global superpower. And not like the United States is today. Our history is around 250 years old. We've been a global power for much less than that. They had been a global superpower for over a millennia already. The, the pyramids had already been built. The Hebrews didn't do that. They had already been built. That just shows the might of these people. The great pyramids of Giza, 2500 B.C., 50 stories tall, engineering marvel. One of the, uh, no, the only remaining ancient seven wonders of the world. The only one that still stands. And that just shows their power. And they are feared, unquestioned in military power for a millennia. Different people had led Egypt, but the nation itself. And they're in touch with dark forces, demonic forces. And this is Egypt, and Pharaoh rules unquestionably. First character you need to know. The next character you need to know is probably pretty obvious. We need to know Moses. Even if you have very little background in the church, you probably know that name, Moses. And his story's remarkable. And outside of next week, we'll be talking about him every single week throughout this study. And so we'll get into the, all the trees of that, but just from a forest standpoint, kind of like that Captain Obvious commercial, you need to know Moses is a major character. 
But the main character of the book, number three in your notes, the star, the hero, is God. This book is about God. It is God Himself who reveals Himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses wasn't looking for God. God did that. God's the actor. Moses was an 80-year-old murdering shepherd. That's who he was. God came to him. And even all that Moses did that we're going to see, it was God who choreographed, conceived, and empowered all of us. It was God who gave the power to this octogenarian to confront Pharaoh over and over and over. It was God who heard His people cry in bondage and took pity on them, raising up a deliverer to save them. It's God who visits plagues on Egypt. It's God who divides the sea, drowns Pharaoh's armies. It's God who provides bread from heaven and water from a rock. It's God who gives the law covenant on the mountain, fills the tabernacle with His glory. From beginning to end, Exodus is a God-centered book. And that's why when the biblical writers like reflect back on it, they don't talk about Moses. They talk about the wonders that God did. It's about God. And specifically, and write this down, His character, like these are the themes, His sovereignty and power, and His salvation, His liberation, His deliverance. Those are the three great themes we will see over and over in this book. His character, His sovereignty and power, and His deliverance, His salvation. These are the contours of the mountains we need to trace. And so as we kind of think about God's character, a couple of details on God's character, one of the things that we will see throughout this book and be reminded of repetitively is that God is faithful. You see why we need to read Exodus? God is faithful. Specifically, He keeps His promises. We even see this in the first couple of verses of chapter 1. If you have your Bible open, look at it with me again. Starting in verse 1. It literally begins with the word and, connecting Genesis and Exodus, because it's one big story. So, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Remember, Joseph said, hey, bring them on down here, bring everybody. So here are all of, basically, Jacob's sons, 12 tribes, basically. A few little differences, detailed things. But anyhow, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so we read that, and perhaps as you're reading, your first thought was, Joe, you are right. Jacob's a horrible dad. He named a kid Naphtali. He named a kid Gad. Right? If your name is Gad, I'm sorry. God loves you. Your parents, maybe not, but God loves you. But what should stand out to us is verse 7. 
Like if you read Genesis, if you listened to my overview earlier, verse 7 should kind of pop off the page. But sometimes it doesn't for us, and that's because like, it's, kind of like, it's kind of like me and some of you as it relates to Disney Plus, Star Wars, Mandalorian. All right? So, Mandalorian is a Disney Plus show about uh, a Star Wars character. Uh, yeah, you got that. Mandalorian, all right? So, when Mandalorian, like, I'm a nerd with Star Wars. There are bigger nerds in our church congregation, but I am one. I've watched all the Star Wars Rebel cartoons. I've watched all the Clone Wars cartoons. I've read the Timothy Zahn trilogy novels that came after Star Wars. I am that guy. That's who you hired. I'm sorry. And so when I'm watching The Mandalorian this past season and they roll out characters like Bo-Katan, I'm geeking out. They bring out Ahsoka Tano, I'm geeking out. They bring out Boba Fett, I'm geeking out. And then that last episode, when the lone X-Wing rides up and then steps out and there's a green lightsaber that ignites, Claire and I go slap crazy. Why? Because we understand the context of who those... Like you guys, many of you are like, what are you talking about? Bo-Katan, like this sounds like you're talking in tongues. I, we don't, like, who are these people? Or maybe you watched it and you're sitting with a friend and he's getting all excited about these certain people and you're like, well, what's, what's the big deal about them? It's because you don't know the context. You don't know the background. That's what happens here when we read sometimes. We come to chapter 7 or verse 7 here and we just read through it. But contextually what's happening is this is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Like it's happening they are growing. They are being populated. Even in the midst of weirdness, they are getting oppressed. You skip down to verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Like, it's happening. What God promised is happening. Maybe not in the way they expected. Go to, you know, we're going to be in slavery for 400 years, but still, God is keeping His promises. It's happening. This is what He does. He is the promise keeping God. His promises, not the ones we may think He promised, what He says in His Word, He does. Period. Now, how would our lives look different if we believed that? That He keeps His promises. Everything He says in His God does it. He's faithful. He is a promise keeper. I mean, what would happen to your anxiety if you believe God keeps His promises? To your worry, God keeps His promises. But God doesn't just keep His promises like abstractly or coldly. But rather, another aspect of His character that we see in Exodus is that in the midst of His promises, He also gives us his presence. I mean, we just celebrated this at Christmas, right? Emmanuel. God with us. And this is also a theme in Exodus. I mean, Matthew 1, 23, quoting Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we see this all throughout Exodus as well. God hears his people's cry. He delivers them. He goes with them. 
He divides the sea for them. He gives them bread from heaven. He gives them water from the rock. He's with them. He's a pillar of cloud by day with them. A pillar of fire by night with them. He tabernacles among them. And friends, it's the same in our lives. God is with us always. Even in the midst of our seas, even in the midst of our darkness at night, even in the midst of bondage that we may feel that we're in, even in the midst of the wilderness that we're wandering in, the weariness that we are in, even in the worst of times, God, throughout the book of Exodus, is going to be saying to you, I'm here. I haven't left you. I didn't go on vacation. 400 years of slavery. Where are you, God? I'm still here. You just can't see it right now. That's hard for the people who lived in bondage for 400 years. We look back on it and we're like, oh yeah, 400 years in God. We see exactly what God did. But the generation that died during that time didn't. But they trusted one day. Trust. God keeps His promises and is with us in the day in day out. I mean, how would that change your life if you really believe God is with you always, even to the ends of the age? Turn, if you will, real quick to Exodus 34, verse 6. Another aspect of His character. We've seen His promise-keeping, His presence with us. And in Exodus 34, perhaps we get the greatest statement in all the Old Testament of the character of God. This one who is with us, who keeps his promises. In fact, I encourage you to memorize this verse. Verse 6. What's happening here is God is coming before Abraham. I mean, before Moses, he's already met him in the burning, burning bush, but he's meeting him truly here. Verse 6, The Lord passed before Moses, before him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now what I want you to notice, John even kind of referenced this earlier this morning, when God reveals Himself to Moses right here and kind of introduces Himself. When you introduce yourself, things you say first are pretty important. What, how does He introduce Himself? as merciful and as gracious. Way down at the end, we get justice. A lot of times for us, we reverse this order of list and we think of God first as wrathful, as just, as after me. He's got a clipboard in the sky and he's constantly disappointed with my performance. And Exodus 34 says, contraire, mou frere, flip that upside down. First is mercy and grace. That comes first. Slow to anger. 
and how good, what good news this is because I mean, even the Israelites, no sooner are they freed from bondage than say, you know, I kind of liked Egypt. Can we go back? I want to be in bondage. I want my old idols back. I want my old slavery back. And is that not what we do so often as well? We've been set free, but we're like, I really like that thing. I want to go back to it. The book of Exodus is a story of us. We are the children of Israel. And so maybe you are just like that. You're like, well, yeah, I came to Christ, but now I'm just kind of feeling stuck. And We're just like that. And God, in His graciousness, sometimes grabs us and, and drags us, kicking and, kicking and screaming as He pulls us towards the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And so this, these things, His promise-keeping, His presence with us, His mercy and His grace, these are major characteristics of who God is. We are going to see all throughout Exodus. And so one of the big themes is God's character. Another one is His sovereignty and power. We are going to see this all over the book of Exodus as well. It's full of this. Okay, sovereignty, God's working mysteriously. 400 years in slavery, what is that all about? Now we see the purpose of it. God works sovereignly, He's doing it today as well. We don't always see what's happening, but He's working sovereignly in the midst of our lives. Someday, when the roll's called up yonder and we look back, oh, that's why God did that and that and that. But when I was living in that time frame, I had no clue. And so trust Him now. If you trust Him for eternal salvation, trust Him for tomorrow. But then in Exodus, we're also just going to get to see some of His straight-up power. God will, in Exodus, and can violate the natural law by which He created the world, and it functions like this, and like this, and like this, and like this. God created it to function that way, and whenever He wants, because of the fact that He is God, He can call an audible and say, it's going to do this today. And so all throughout Exodus, over and over, we're just going to kind of see him step back, unbutton his shirt a little bit, and flex. You're going to see it with smaller things, like a burning bush that's not consumed, staff that he throws down, turns into a snake, Moses sticks his hand in his pocket, God tells him to, he pulls it out, it's leprous, puts it back in his pocket, pulls it out, it's perfectly healed, so he can throw down diseases and remove diseases at will. We're going to see the sun blotted out, the Nile River turned to blood, hail fall from the sky, frogs and locusts and gnats and flies and life and death, the parting of the sea, all obeying the sovereign command of the great I Am. And I hope this scares us in all the right ways. That reverential awe and fear, kind of like when you stand before a tiger and you say, oh my word, this thing could destroy me. Praise God, there's a fence that we would look at God and say, oh my word, He could destroy me. Praise God, He's on my side. Demons quiver in front of Jesus, right? 
They're terrified of him. He is almighty. We are going to see his might, his sovereignty, his power in this book. And that is who is with you. And that is who has promised things to you. That is why you can have hope and trust in the midst of crazy. Third thing we'll talk about today, we're going to see, and this is the biggest one you see all throughout the book. And this is God's liberation. This is God's salvation. That he is, as we entitled the whole series, the God who rescues. That's what he does. He rescues. He rescues us from sin. He rescues, but day by day, even the smaller things, he rescues us out of the bondage we find ourselves into a gazillion different things. And this is what the book is best known for. I mean, even over the last 400 years, if you just know history a little bit, this book has provided so much fuel and strength for the fight against injustice and oppression. You think about the Puritans and the pilgrims who came to the new world. What they Read what they said, how they looked back upon Exodus as hope for the future for them and all that they were facing in England. Or read the abolitionists, even the song, O Holy Night. Read it. Exodus. Read Wilberforce in England. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders, all fueled by the book of Exodus. The refrain, let my people go in the joy of free at last. This is all from Exodus. And yeah, we've got a responsibility toward that. But the true and better liberation that Exodus points to is God's deliverance of us from our slavery to sin and death. That's the point of Exodus. Exodus is a picture of the gospel. I mean, just think about it with me for a minute. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a Savior and yet had to be saved in his younger, his toddler years. And he also had to sojourn in Egypt. For it is written, out of Egypt I called my son, Matthew 2.15. Like the children of Israel, Jesus passed through the waters. His was the water of baptism. Also like the Israelites, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. Upon His return from the wilderness, He goes up on the mountain and gives out kind of a new law. The Sermon on the Mount. And we read this morning. Went up on a mountain. Just as Moses went up on a mountain and received the law from God. The Ten Commandments. But it's not just Jesus' life that follows the pattern of Exodus, but also His death. Turn to Luke 9 and I'll show you. Luke chapter 9. What's going on in the passage we're going to be looking at here is something called the transfiguration. And there's a lot into that. I don't have time to go into all that this morning. The transfiguration is going on. And look at verse 30. Luke chapter 9, verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, 
New Testament is written in what language? Greek. What did I tell you at the beginning of the sermon was the Greek word for departure? Exodus. So this literally says that Moses is there talking with Jesus about the Exodus. Now, he's not talking about the Exodus he was a part of. He's been there, done that. He's talking about the Exodus that Jesus is going to lead. Not just a temporary freedom from slavery to Egypt, but a permanent freedom from slavery to sin. And to accomplish this, Jesus is going to have to pass through the deep waters of death and deliver His people from their bondage to sin and take them to glory land, promised land, new heavens, new earth. And this explains then why Jesus was crucified at Passover. He's the true and better exodus. He's the true and better Passover Lamb who substituted Himself for us. He dies instead of us to atone for our sins. This is the salvation that God has brought. And even that word salvation, first place you see it, book of Exodus. All the words that are used to describe what Jesus did, ransom, redemption, salvation, where do they come from? Exodus. And so what all these connections with Christ shows us is that Exodus is not just a story of salvation, but the story of salvation. And therefore, it's the story of the Christian life. And what the Israelites needed is what we need. We need a liberator, a provider, a lawgiver and a friend who will be with us in the daytime and in the nighttime forever. And this is the God of Exodus. And so as we go forward, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss who God is. Be on the lookout for these things. Keep them tucked away in your head. Be constantly looking for God's promise-keeping, present-with-us character. For His sovereignty and power. And for His saving grace. Welcome to the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Father, in the days to come, may these themes become all the more real to us. They are real. Make our hearts believe. As we look and mine into the trees, let us not lose focus on the big picture themes and forests. But God, I pray that not just in the future, but maybe even today, not maybe, that today you would stir in our hearts a robust renewal and confidence in you and you alone and your promise-keeping covenantal 
present with us, mercy, grace, slow to anger, character. That we would grab hold and believe it. And know that the one who is sovereign and all-powerful is the one who's with us. And you are taking us to glory. You are working everything according to your wisdom and power and plan. Creation, fall, redemption, and a coming restoration. And cause us to trust. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.